0: What's up, everyone? Welcome to...
1: Cinematic Underdogs.
0: I'm Paul Keelan. And I'm Jordan Puga. Today, we are going to be taking a look at the 1999, I'm not going to call it classic, but hockey film, Mystery Alaska.
1: I think that it's fair they didn't call it a classic.
0: We talked about this earlier. Let's just get right into it. I only remember this as the one where a person in his jockstrap slid on his ass across the ice. That's the only memory I had of this. That's the scene that connects me to this movie. About you?
1: Similarly, I felt like I had seen it. I think I still had with my parents. I felt like I had such a strong memory of this movie i didn't remember a thing when i watched it again it was like watching it for the first time as you noted uh to me today that you felt like you're watching it for the first time and i didn't know when you mentioned like is it
0: the film where the jockstrap scene happens
1: that it happened in either until i saw it and i was like oh it is like
0: yeah that's... i was questioning i was questioning my memory too is this is like when of was like mandela effect things like did this happen like am i remembering an 80s movie instead i was i was questioning my like not just my memory I was questioning reality watching this, I guess.
1: That's one of the fun things about these really nostalgic films that get lost, not only like in the zeitgeist, but in your own memories, right? In your own brain. And it's like this deja vu moment or it's very uncanny, right? You're like, I saw this and I didn't. And you're reliving something that you only have the slightest inkling that you experienced before. It's so strange. What Do you have... What's your take on that feeling of like watching something you've seen, but have no like real memory of at the same time? Of you know
0: explicit- what? Yeah, I think I'm, I think our podcast actually helped me like work my way through this this trauma. I'm going like, oh, to watching this movie because the whole time I'm watching a damn plot, I'm thinking about my memory and getting older and forgetting stuff. But as, as we know, we do how we do it in the show. We always like to look at the uh, domestic box office for the week in which the film was released. And as I'm looking through, we'll go through the list right now. I can see why this is kind of pushed back and then the memory is a film for that year for me. We talked about, for those who are familiar with this podcast and heard us talk about the 90s in particular, we've already mentioned that 1999 was a pretty big year in film for both of us in our lives. Movies like Matrix and Fight Club would be released that year. So I want to get into this list because I feel like as we go through these movies, we'll kind of talk about which ones we remember and we'll see, I think, why those memories kind of got pushed to the back of our head. So let's start off with what was number one that week, which was Double Jeopardy and it's second week out so it was, took number one spot for the second week in a row that one's been at that time was grossing 17 million that's starring uh, ashley judd and tommy lee jones this one is one of my favorite i'm like sort of like underrated but it was my favorite like 90s quintessential i'll call it like quintessential 90s drama actually yeah. i think uh for me definitely remember this one it's not like an action movie like on the lines of face off or the, uh, the rock but for me it kind of falls in that era, era when i was watching films of that caliber i guess i'd say
1: Totally. I remember watching this movie and the whole time just being like so fascinated with what Double Jeopardy means legally, mm-hmm. right, as a legal term. And it's a good thriller. It's a it's a pretty rad thriller. I, it came back. We brought this up in another podcast uh, this year. It came on Netflix mid-summer 2020 when everyone was stuck in their homes 100% and just dominated their top 10. So yeah. it had it had a big resurgence.
0: I am a big Tommy Lee fan. I just think about this movie, particularly because I'm a big Batman fan. And I do like Batman Forever, which has Tommy Lee Jones as Two-Face. And I do like Men in Black. So this is the first time me as a kid seeing the guy from these movies are generally geared towards a younger audience in a sustainable, you know, high-powered role uh, where he can really, like, flex that acting muscle. So this is one that really, like, turned me on to, like, Tommy Lee Jones and what he can do with a really good script.
1: Oh, uh, no, yeah, Tommy Lee Jones can really lead a film when he went, especially in that in that decade when he was always, like, in these fugitive films. Mm-hmm. I feel like when the great Cohen Brothers film came out, No Country for Old Men, and he plays the old disgruntled cop, it was an interesting move in his career to me because in the 90s, he was, like, the young, kind of real popcorn cop mm-hmm. and detective and that was like him going into his twilight years so kind of like a wink towards his own career in my mind um, exactly especially, yeah
0: I like that you oh. point that out because that's that's one of my I love that, one of my favorite movies, just throw that out there in that role. And like you said, just for all those reasons, he's the go-to, get-it-done kind of cop. In that movie, it's him coming to terms with the futility of that ethos, which yeah, yeah, I, get, I talk about that movie all, all day long, but we'll move <laughs> on to this list because there's other good movies to talk about on this list. Next up, coming in at number two was Three Kings, which stars George Clooney, Mark Wahlberg, Ice Cube. I will start this one off by saying this, when I talk about those three actors who've I'll put out excellent movies since then. This is my favorite movie for all three of them, probably, in terms of their performances. I love George Clooney in this. Ice Cube kills it. This is my favorite Mark Wahlberg movie by far. So yeah, I have vivid memories of watching this one uh, with your mom and dad. I remember taking us to Stierenstein before, and then we went to go watch this. Can talk about this one for a while too. What were your thoughts on Three Kings?
1: Yeah, I was just looking up the cast real quick. Spike Jones is actually in it, and so is Jamie Kennedy. Do you remember Jamie yeah. Kennedy, the comedian? Yeah. Uh, Jamie Kennedy was in our favorite. Uh, I mean, R It's a weird R. It's a weird collective. I, I, our band, right? So, a big mm-hmm. tragedy. We loved Malibu's Most Wanted. Remember that? <laughs> we watched like so many times. It was like oh, yeah. Irving's favorite film, um, <laughs> and I still remember quotes from that line. There's a scene where Jamie Kennedy. He's like, you know, kind of a, a rapper in Malibu. He drops his chapstick, and or something. He's like, chapstick, chapstick. I'm in traffic. I dropped my chapstick. (laughs) It's like so (laughs) stupid. Yeah, that these idiotic lines are embedded in my head. But anyways, what I remember about Three Kings was being blown away as a kid. It was really good movie, ultra violent. And I just remembered why it was so memorable in the theater. It's because it kept having technical difficulties. It would start up and it got like 15 minutes in and something was wrong with the the reel. And it would just like go black or kind of like get garbled up and everyone would just moan. And then we would start the film over. So we had to start over the film like two or three times, (laughs) but it like built the crowd up because they were teasing us. And we would have to sit there with the lights on again, even though no one was really talking, you just kind of like look at your neighbors, you know, those moments when like things aren't going properly and you feel like a sort of camaraderie. That's what I remember about it. Mm. It's like doing this camaraderie. And when it finally worked, it just like hit on all cylinders and it's a David O. Russell film. And so, I, I mean, David O. Russell is great. And it's an interesting entry for him, but, uh, I'm excited we're going to be able to do like silver linings playbook on our podcast. So at least we get one kind of sports movie with him, but yeah, three (laughs) Kings rocks. All the way around it's one of my favorites that i haven't seen have you seen it since we first saw it that's my yeah favorite.
0: i have it's actually one of those ones when i get into like that war film zone where i'm kind of going through war movies i tend to kind of start with this one at least in the last like decade i think that's the best like golf war story that we, we've we had out there right now
1: i mean i remember jamie fox just killed it and george clooney was just suave george clooney and it had such a cool balance of the heist flick and mm-hmm. the war flick going on and there were some crazy explosive scenes. <laughs> so yeah. And number three, it was only three weeks in cinema, American Beauty, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Just like one of the all-time great films of the 90s that still, I think, plays and resonates well today i mean
0: it's a movie you can go back to like you said like for the new takes and just in terms of studying film this is like the one that i started seeing more towards the end of like undergrad school where this is being more of like a 101 film you have to see which i thought was awesome this is one of those movies that year that really turned me on to um the ideas of film being something that can like just move you beyond beyond just the commercial aspect of the movie, beyond something that's just being marketed to you.
1: Yeah, and one of the things I noticed about the late 90s was the main motif or theme for me was a rebellion against suburbia, right? Because I feel like the 90s were such a suburban time. I think things were going well for the most part. Besides like, you know, the Iraq war, Um, but that was like very abstract and it just didn't have the ramifications at home. The biggest things were like the Clinton Lewinsky scandal and things like Mm -hmm. that. But there was a sense of like homogenous, happy, middle class, suburban culture in America that grew stifling to the creatives. And so, you know, whether it's American Beauty, right, or Fight Club, which also came out in 99, you see these films in different ways, really rebelling against like suburban Uh, drawlery, right? Uh, You see Kevin Spacey. It's really, to me, uh, a parable about the trapped confines of suburban life.
0: That's an excellent analysis. I think that carries over even to like the comedies of this time. When you're looking at comedies like American Pie, which has actresses from American Beauty in it, uh, me and Serena. When you look at even the comedic aspects of, like you're saying, just these movies at this time really deconstructed suburban life to show something not necessarily nefarious or taboo, subversive underneath. Like American Pie, is that's it's you know it is very suburban, but it's also kind of playing with the veneer, poking fun, doing what it can to subvert that, even with the parents. You know the parents like Dan Levy. Uh, character becomes iconic for his perverseness, weirdly, right? And by every his openness with sex, he becomes like almost like the carries out flag for that particular generation of parenting, right? Which, which would become the norm to some degree, at least when you look at the way uh, like sitcoms is to portray like the family unit now, which is interesting because we're talking about the way it was deconstructed and how that's now kind of pushed up more, definitely rounded out, but pushed to the precipice of these plots that you see now.
1: Yeah. And also you have the normalizing of like high school sexual relations with American Pie because it treated it, I think, maturely and it accepted it. Right. It also had like the quintessential 90s, like fetishization of boobs with Nadia. Right. That was like key to the film. And, you know, we got the Stifler phase, right? He, literally, Stifler became a new archetype. Even if he was done before, it was a variation.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, we also have the concept of voyeurism, too, because this is like the concept of, you know, the turn of the century, internet and all that stuff. Uh, we've talked about comparisons of, we're thinking about American Pie here, but still compared to American Beauty, the idea of the voyeur neighbor and how that's all carried over, this idea of watching and not giving consent and all that's carried over in both films. Explored completely differently, right? But there's still still prevalent and i think prevalent for a reason like you brought out to us at that time we're not distracted with war the way we are now the war was short and in the back of our heads, and that's a big part of actually like carrying on with another movie on our list with three kings right is it's really highlighting the war that we missed and that's a, a part of it is that they missed the war but they get you know the back end of it ironically so yeah, we talked about some why I do. I like that you point that out, though, that deconstruction of suburban life and why that be uh, a claim. Because, right, like American Beauty is going to take the Academy Award this year.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, it was up against really steep competition, too. I mean, the big film in 1999, I feel, though, is The Matrix, which is yeah. also about, to me, a thinly veiled parable of suburban lifestyle because everything felt so perfect. Whether uh, Similarly, The Truman Show right? I mean, yeah. all of these, I don't know if the Truman show was 1999, but it was around that time. Yeah. It, it's this feeling that like the collective is just so strong and it actually was a very uh, benign collective then. It wasn't like mob rule or we weren't talking about like outrage or cancel culture yeah. or anything like that. But it was just this feeling that like goodness and just subtle virtuousness and being nice and neighborly was stifling and in soul crunching, right? Yeah. That, that was the sentiment in the air, and uh, even as twelve-year-olds, we felt it, and we were like, I, I, at least I was, and it resonated throughout the musicians we listened to, like punk yeah, and emo yeah. bands, was like so anti the nine-to-five. Right? think that was the culture. Uh, it was the punk rock then was not so much about anti-government; it was anti-nine-to-five during that period, mm-hmm. which I find interesting because usually punk rock is like you know, you know, down with the system, down with the government, and it was a different system, something like the corporate system was the nefarious system. But it Mm -hmm. actually wasn't that evil. It was just very subtly insidious in which, you know, consumed your life, but it didn't actually like treat you terribly, right? It fed you well and gave your family a nice home. And it was just a weird, weird time. And I think that it's cool to talk about this because it's, foreshadowing how mystery alaska also has a weird we'll get into it ethos that kind of feels very 90s
0: mm-hmm.
1: and in some parts feel very very dated but still feels very 90s it feels like a sitcomy 90s world
0: that's a good way of putting it yeah, yeah.
1: so anyways number four blue streak martin lawrence definitely a classic comedy i i, th- I, I remember watching it and laughing a lot but i don't remember much about it I, I know it's about like a convict who poses as a cop and trying to like retrieve his diamond but do you mm-hmm. remember this movie at all? Like, what what do you what did you take?
0: Yeah, you, that was a good summary of it. I remember him, Luke Wilson. If I remember right, is in it. And yeah, exactly. Some exact summary. I like the set. Basically, he hit a diamond in a place that would become a police station. And when he gets out, of Jelly goes to get that diamond, but to get in, he has to pretend to be a cop. Like you said, this is one of my favorite Martin Lawrence movies, up there with Big Mama, the most one of the most underrated trilogies. When We talk about trilogies, we forget about Big Mama's House. But I digress. But definitely, I, I'm one of my favorite go to Martin Lawrence comedies. If I'm if I'm looking to laugh. Tons of good lines in this. Yeah, this is one of his high, one of his better performances.
1: Yeah, Big Mama's House. I, I mean, I give it props too. So I'm all for that. And the next one, Drive Me Crazy. It's a different one. It's more of a milk toast teenage flick that has not the lasting power or subversiveness as American Pie. It had our big TV star with Melissa Joan Hart, um, and I remember the cover of the poster for the film mm-hmm. and a little bit about the plot that I have the synopsis here. It's Nicole and chase. They are BFFs, right? The best friends forever. And then junior I happens. The high school centennial dance is coming when Nicole gets dumped. So does chase. So it's these like former BFFs who are so both suddenly Uh, running solo, and they're going to stage a relationship to get back at their exes. It's it's a very classic sort of drama tale. I don't remember it much, though. I just remember it like being a blockbuster and constantly thinking about renting it and maybe never doing it. I I, I don't know. This is a blank spot for
0: me. This is one I just remember because of MTV and Britney Spears had a song that was tied to the soundtrack. So you see the music video. I think it had prior clips, I'm assuming, of like the videos and st- or the movie trailer stuff in it. Because I don't think that the song is like, you drive me crazy. I remember, I was just wondering, like hits. It's like a hit. You probably still hear it today on the radio. But yeah, I agree. I, that's how I always remember this one. I'm like, it's tied to me to a soundtrack. Interesting enough. I haven't seen this one, though. I don't think.
1: Yeah, I was uh, in my head saying, I think there's a song that goes with this. And yeah, you're, you're, you're on the spot, right? You drive me crazy. I just can't see. Yeah. I'm so excited. What's the next line? I'm in. Too deep. Deep, yeah. I guess,
0: I, if I was, was going to finish that line, yeah. classic '90s line right there.
1: <laughs> yeah. Also, a famous song from who to put you on a little trivia spot? Into deep. Uh, oh, song
0: 41, that- dog. All day, all day.
1: You got it. You got it. Um, so we're now at. The number seven spot, which is for love of the game, um, that's going to be one we're going to do. It's, it's a mm-hmm. classic, another Kevin Costner sports film. I keep saying he's he's the sports king of actors. I think he is the sports film actor. That's going to be. He might be season. the
0: dark horse on our list here of uh, reoccurring actors. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see who makes it. Who makes the list here at the end? But you might be. I might. I might. You might have a good call there. At that one.
1: Who do you think would be uh, another actor that is like the sports genre actor? Oh, man. One. There is a, uh, I'll try to help you as we're thinking Tom Cruise yeah, is in a cut kind of a lot of peripheral sports movies with Top Gun and Jerry Maguire. I was going to say, so I
0: was going to say uh, Cruise there for a bit. I was gonna say Burt Reynolds might suddenly be in a lot of sports movies than I realized from like the Longest Yard, the original the one we're going to talk about today here in Mystery Alaska. That's just off the top of my head, but.
1: What about Kiana?
0: Oh, that's a good one. I didn't, oh, I should have gotten there earlier, earlier. That's a good, that's a good one.
1: Yeah, and I think Matthew McConaughey's been in quite a few, too, Um, considering we started him off uh, in our very first podcast, Angels in the Outfield, is basically his, like, you know, freshman film. Yeah. And then, you know, later you're going to get We Are Marshall, where he's the coach, a huge role in a film. He's in Days and Confused. I know that's not a sports movie, but I got sports. I still have sports vibes from that. I
0: don't know. Yeah, I was thinking Will Smith might suddenly come up here a few times, too. There's a lot. There's a lot of ones there, but, yeah, I think Cruz, and I feel like Will Smith might be my front runners of –
1: yeah, yeah. Ali is great. with, um, And, you know, he's fantastic in concussion. I thought he was very yeah. solid for that. It, you know, it was mediocre, but he was good. And so, you know, for love of the game, quick synopsis, it's after 19 years of playing the game, he's loved his whole life. A Detroit Tigers pitcher has to decide if he's going to risk everything and, and put it all out there. And it, it's definitely a love story as well. That's what's cool. It's, a, it's a definitely a romantic story mixed with the sports movie shout out to don i think that's one of his favorites who comes on the pod a lot it'll be one we uh we capture too and we'll do do uh, ali too so i'm thinking of all our guests now because they give us our their top fives and justin ku loves ali totally oh nice talked that one up and touted that one so finally we're at number eight and number eight is our week's film right that's right so oh,
0: number number nine is our week film uh mystery alaska came in at number nine that week
1: Oh, all right. So I'm just going to read uh, that On the so,
0: bench was The Adventures of Elmo in Grouchland. I don't remember that one, but um, that was at number eight that week.
1: Oh, nice, nice, nice. And then after Elmo and Grouchland, which I've never heard of, don't know. Sorry to skip that almost. Uh, we have number nine, Mystery Alaska, uh, opening up with a mere $3 million. And it played in 1600, almost 1700 theaters, which is a lot of theaters for mm-hmm. that much money. In total, it raked in 8.7 million and its budget was 28 million. So this was a flop, F-L-O-P, big flop, it, like total bust at the box office and even make a, uh, just over a fourth of, of what it costs. And to put that in perspective, we have our number one film, Double Jeopardy. It made $17 million this week, but it had 47 already in two weeks. Like, Double Jeopardy is not a big budget film either. I don't know the budget, but it's a small little thriller. There was money to be made at the box office then. There wasn't Avengers money, but there was definite money to be made because that's what people did on the weekend. And Mystery Alaska was lost in the fray here, which is kind of like you're your theme to start off this box office reflection.
0: Yeah, it's definitely there. At the obviously we're sitting at number nine for a reason. And when you look at other movies around like Stigma, these other ones are a little bit bigger. Would stick around. You can see why. Let's let's just get let's just get into it. I think with our criticisms or analysis of the film, Uh, particularly obviously this is our third one in our hockey one right now, right? We've just did Slapshot and we're coming off of Young Bloods, right? So I feel like this is one of these this it's trying to combine those movies kind of. Right? We have the story of a town that is not struggling, not in this case, but is a small town with its identity. What that identity is, I will say, is not necessarily clear by the end of the film. That is a theme that they want to say that that word identity is thrown out a lot in this movie. And then we have that aspect of kind of like making the team, being on the team, and then the politics of the team that are present, right? That's all big parts of Young Blood, not so much slap Slapshot. So I definitely see those threads in this film. And then we obviously have our quintessential underdog aspect of... Out of town pro NHL team, the Rangers, we're gonna come play this Mystery Alaska team. Just again laying out the plot. I see so many similarities to these other movies, which are classics, even at this time, that I feel like it's it's trying to achieve something in its parts that it doesn't ever doesn't really accomplish at the end.
1: Yeah, that's a good way to start it off. I think that it's a film that feels slight and yet some of the actors carry a heavy weight in it that feels Mm -hmm. incongruous to it. So first of all, it's a film with a lot of great actors, right? That's a good place to start as well. We already brought up Burt Reynolds. I was surprised. I didn't remember that Burt Reynolds was in the film, but I was definitely surprised, especially after our fun conversation with Don, (laughs) trying to figure out who the Burt Reynolds of like today was. And we missed someone that I definitely think could fit that Burt Reynolds- a vibe uh, that we didn't bring up, which was Channing Tatum. That's just a shout out. Go back to Slapshot. Listen to that hilarious conversation. We have Burt Reynolds. We also have probably the biggest action. I don't even know if he's really the action star, but like heavy drama, almost Oscar winning actor of the time, Russell Crowe, right? Coming off of Gladiator. He was just in heavy hitting movies. And he has a gravitas to him that is So similar to like Mel Gibson, for example, to me, but then slightly different. He's kind of a sappy, downtrodden puppy dog. He's always very sad and melancholic, and he carries that with him in this film really well. The problem is the film feels very, like I already mentioned it, kind of like a sitcom vibe. And before I pass it on to you, I I found out that it was written by David E. Kelly who was one of the most successful TV writers at the time and producers as well. Everything from Ally McBeal to The Practice to Boston Legal, he's still killing it with Big Little Lies, uh, The Undoing. Doogie Hauser. even he was part of, he's been in like every other TV series for the past 25 years. You know, he's a great sitcom writer and this felt very sitcom oriented in which these small comedic scenes and a diverse ensemble cast with little relationship problems are all going on and converging in funny ways and then it was also trying to be this traditional sports movie on top of that and i don't know if it juggled those two things as well as i don't know if it could have ever juggled it well but i don't know if they quite work together that yeah. was kind of my
0: reading that's a good reading because i feel like i've had a very similar reading that they're trying to mix in the comedic elements just carrying out the conversation we just had it felt very much like a sitcom writer who's trying to compete with the commercials of the films that are preceding this one like a la american pie we got this scene with premature ejaculation which isn't really that funny it, it could be funny for the time it could work within that instant moment but it doesn't tie into anything so for context we have this young kid who's gonna join the the mystery alaska team basically hooking up with the coach's coach's daughter right if i remember right burt reynolds our judge is gonna be the coach anyways you've seen the movie so y- y'all know it's up anyways the way it works though right it it doesn't land it's not the same as jim busting a load in a sock with nadia and everybody on the internet right It doesn't have the layers of irony of sexual tension versus voyeurism versus taboo like all these things piling up it's just oh it's it's a penis and it and it came so therefore she's uncomfortable and then it doesn't tie into anything though so that's that's one of those things like where we see like the the idea of body humor etc it's just not really explored adequately enough for it one to land as a joke. And two, it just seems like it just needs to be cut from the existing plot because to carry on what you said, there's no heart to this story. When we talk about movies like Slapshot, there's a clear, clear goal of that screenplay is just make hockey players look and sound like the assholes and animals they are. And this one. Is, does not do that. Pokes that with a stick and and refuses to really do it. And we'll start off with this scene with the with the locker room where uh, Russell Crowe's kids drops an F bomb because he heard it in the locker room. Then his son says, "Well, Dad, you know what it's like in the locker room." And I thought that was gonna be like a big overarching theme that's gonna be explored and carried out, and it's not. It's this little thing that basically tease you that people curse and say inappropriate things in a hockey locker room, and we'll have segments of it but the camaraderie and like you know the culture of what those coded words are why those words are used and their defense mechanisms et cetera, all the politics of that is just completely absent of it. Whereas when we are watching Slapshot, it's right there in your face. It it draws you in the laughter, like Slapshot with deadpan humor, where the guy's explaining hockey shots of what he does with his stick. It really embraces the insideness of being an insider in the sport, just like Youngblood does. And then the audience comes to know that, comes to become an insider through those films with those two that uh, we just watched. This one, I don't get engulfed in the film at all that way. I'm trying to find an avenue because there's so many competing plot points here because it's... It's kind of doing a lot of the ones we pick don't do it's it's put a lot of movies we pick have all these sports cliches but they tend to usually subvert them at least in some way and this one not so much it's 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 really saying I have all the cliches here therefore I have a complete product and I don't think it it is
1: yeah I, I very much agree with all of your take I would uh just like to probably extrapolate on it a bit I think that a lot of the sexual humor is trying to compound or coalesce by playing off each other. So you have so many different liaisons going on and yeah, all these awkward sexual encounters, whether it's, they were in a snow plower, right? When he mm-hmm. prematurely ejaculates, And then you have the mayor's wife being wooed by the town playboy who's this like dopey. I think he's a school teacher actually, but (laughs) he just basically hits on anything that walks. And, you know, the mayor's being cuckolded. He's kind of mopey when he finds out about it, rightfully so. You have Russell Crowe, who's really jealous of his wife because his wife had a thing for Hank Azario's character who's the like town intellectual who left to New York, became a sports illustrated writer. And he's kind of the catalyst for the film because he's the one who orchestrates the game between mystery, Alaska, this fictionalized town. We'll get into some of its influences later, which are interesting, but it's all just imaginary uh, versus a real NHL team. So you just have all these shenanigans going on and there's nothing real that they are saying. There's no overarching meaning here except for like this is life it's messy and it's a motif it's a thread that uh, gives us a sense of commonality but not some sort of unifying take or, or something to chew on that, that really like feeds those deeper curiosities and that's why I think that it is kind of like a lightweight diet coke version of Dawson's Creek for example I think Dawson's Creek's more dynamic than than this film and I also think that the locker room stuff is not explored because it's too much of a plot line and it's actually too thematic. I'm putting up air quotes. Mm. I'm letting people know because we're on a podcast, right? With the kid saying the F-bomb and then getting talked about. And then later we get the dramatic over-the-top scene in which I think his name is Skink. Is that right? His name is that literal? Yeah. yeah. Just like Youngblood is like the most literalized name of a character's uh, thematic resonance and purpose in a film. We have a character named Skink, who's a total like blanderer in, in this movie. I think that's hilarious. As bad as he gets, I think when there's a color commentator who comes to town, who's a woman, he's like, I'll put my log in some place, some sexual innuendo with like yeah. logs and, and stuff, right? It was just blatantly uh, promiscuous um, in, in every moment of the film. So he's, I guess, talking about just some random woman in town that he slept with in the first locker room scene and he likens her to a walrus and says she was slippery and kind of like blubbery and fat Mm -hmm. and later in the film he goes back to her and tries to hook up again and she hits him in the head with the shovel which is another fun motif we got to explore there's a lot of legal incidents and ridiculous (laughs) court scenes very 90s and very absurd but uh, really quickly before I pass it on to Perhaps that or perhaps another discussion. I I found it interesting that they have this big like locker room talk must stay in the locker room, right? And that takes us to your big scene that you remembered was the jockstrap scene. It was like a kind of hearsay thing in which I think the two... Alaskan Inuits uh, are like kind of Native American looking guys in the team You yeah. don't get to talk much, sadly, wish they would have had a bigger role. I guess told another guy who told his girlfriend who then told the girl, right? So the guy who told the girlfriend gets in trouble by the team because he broke the code. So there's a code. There's just no like essence to this. There's no like meats on the bones. It yeah. doesn't have the believability. It feels very disney yet rated R. It's like a Disney rated R movie. And so it's, it's, it's a bizarre one. So
0: yeah, that's what you brought it. It's, it's doing too much of this, like the classic telling and not showing where, like you said, the, the code, like Youngblood uses as our example here, it establishes that locker room code and then the code of the ice, of the fighting. Without using the word, the code, or even calling in the notion of this is a sacred space or this is a safe space if you want to call it that like people probably call it today but it's more the idea that like this is a space you don't you don't fuck with this pretty much that they wouldn't even use that wording for this right they try to make it sound way more sacred than it is it's really more of a you don't turn on the boys they don't they would never they don't even phrase it like that right they don't even use the vernacular that hockey players would use again with the R rating it kind of drives me a little crazy when i watch this because of how fluid like slap shot is or how fluid patrick swayze is I, this that's one thing i really want to go back to this like patrick swayze just brings so much like just inertia and energy into that locker room scenes of young blood where he feels not just like a captain of the squad but like a legitimate just like a legitimate like motivator for like you know the boys you know like it carries into the bar room scenes it's like this presence that's uh, throughout russell crowe doesn't get that in this movie because you point out there's a lot of good actors in this who do good jobs with what they're given but what they're given so minimal isn't attached to anything grander in, in regards with the with the actual script they're working with, that they really just become like these really empty archetypes. He really just becomes sheriff, hockey player. The idea that he looks rugged, like you said, you nailed perfect. He looks like a like a sheriff who could take you out, but probably won't, right? Like he does in this movie. He he'll pull you over for the DUI, but he won't curb your ass. But but he can still play hockey. Like the way it works, it doesn't work the same way as I buy into Paul Newman as a player coach. As a player coach who's devious and who's dealing in all sorts of ends and ins and outs. So when he, Paul Newman discovers that the, the owner of the team's a female, it lands so hard on us. When we find out that Burt Reynolds used to play, that he's going to be the coach, and then the Russell Coates character is going to get to be a player coach, that ceremonial aspect, like the gravitas toss of all that moment, it's absent. It's not there. And those, for me, are the big things that fail. And I think these hockey movies, at least the two we watched before this, as I re rewatched them, they do such a good job of doing what like many good movies, mythic story movies do. They make these movie moments feel grand they feel spiritual in some ways like the face-off penalty shots we've discussed in all these movies there's you know there's a spiritualism it's like luke riley of a lightsaber And this movie just it's trying to get that in there and it just it does fail in so many levels and it's unfortunate because it, like we say it's a functional movie good performances we'll get to cinematography in a bit but there's these elements that are just it's kind of empty
1: yeah i agree and i'm gonna jump ahead and pull one of my reviews because first of all we got to bring it up early to make all the listeners well aware that this is our first review and maybe our last review Of a fictionalized sports movie, we're going to get Roger Ebert's score that's above two stars. It was two and a half. So that gets his official thumbs up. So isn't that a... This one. Yes, this is is the one that wins his heart after all the ones we've seen where he just railed on. (laughs) Mystery Alaska has a special place in Ebert's heart. But that said, he's basically on board with everything we're saying and everything you just said. And I think he pushes our conversation further in a very succinct way. So I'm going to just quote him real quick. He says, Mystery Alaska is sweet, pleasant, low-key, inoffensive, and unnecessary. First of all, I think that's kind of like everything that we're kind of getting at right there. Nothing's wrong with it. It's a likable movie. It's entertaining. The cliches are heartfelt. Whether it's like the scene with uh, the old woman who calls Hank Arzario's character who comes back to town a prick, right? It's funny. Mm -hmm. Or when they all decide that, I'll play against the New York Rangers. I'll play, and they all stand up, right? A very angels in the outfield, right? That's such a a trope we love, and and they're doing it well, right? Is it really necessary? Do you really believe any of it? No. Yeah. The courtroom scene with our town's big dead Bailey, right? I forget his yeah. first name, but uh, everyone suddenly sad against this kind of buffoonish, silly a lawyer who's just got like the biggest heart, I guess, right? Because he says like, he plays the skate when he's talking about like the big guy on the team named tree, he skates to skate. We're supposed to believe that the judge is only going to like mandate the NHL play them because of this reasoning, because these kids have an ethos of dedication to the sport that transcends money. It's, it's just, it's really silly. The whole thing and uh i'm going to continue now with a little bit more of ebert's review and he says it sticks up for the underdogs nice people in small towns it doesn't like big corporations adulterers tv producers and new york in general it contains not only a big game with a thrilling finish but also a courtroom scene a funeral scene an innocent teenage sex scene a change of heart scene and a lot of scenery no one falls through the ice though and no one drowns, but we can't hope for everything, um, which I love that last line. It's one of the like funniest lines I've ever <laughs> read of his yet. That's it's so just, metal. <laughs> it's so metal. And it's just, it's just doing every kind of platitudinal sitcomy drama beat that you would expect someone to fall through the ice <laughs> and drown, right? And he's just so sarcastic when he says that, which is just like, it's good. It's fine. It's inoffensive. It's benign, but whatever. I love it. I love how apathetic and jaded it is, but he he reluctantly liked it. He gave it two and a half stars. So what can you say? This was the one. (laughs) What do you think about that? That that this is the one that won his
0: heart? I find it interesting that this one was hard for, Well, I was going to pose this question to you a second because like, just carrying off what he said, what'd you think of the hitting in this one or in terms of hitting slash violence, how this kind of deals with it in this? What'd you think of that?
1: Yeah. I mean, with the big scene between tree and Russell Crowe's character, you know, the sheriff slash coach slash returning star that, like I said, it's disney in a way like it's too telegraphed. It just feels too hackneyed and it's coming from more authentic versions. So like we were kind of hard on Youngblood, right? But I feel like the scene where he's egged on by his father to fight or at least taught by his father has way more depth than this scene where suddenly they're like, okay, we have to give the big goofy guy the caricature his personality and so this is his scene for him and we have to touch upon the trope of hockey in this way which we have to have like our goon character learn how to like check and it's like the big gentle giant cliche in which he has to like basically instigate quote the guy named tree to knock him down and then you know that everyone's gonna be worried for like a quick second and then Mm -hmm. russell crowe's gonna like be like that's it good job i don't know it's just so predictable that just kind of roll with it or roll your eyes, or I don't know, it depends on what, yeah. what mood you're in really.
0: My thing was, I felt like it was really, put the safety gloves on it Obviously it was working with the NHL on it, but it did not want to address, I'll use this as a point, they make a plot point that the big reason they're gonna beat the, the Rangers is because they play on a giant sheet of ice without boards, meaning they don't hit a lot. So I thought that'd be like a big point would be to make hockey seem like scary, right? Like, like what Youngblood does, with the idea that like, you should be scared to get hurt. Because that was a reality. To go out there you know, is to take that chance that you could end up like your head split on the ice. And you know, this movie goes nowhere near that. Or even addressing like the reality of or pushing the urgency of that into the performance. Which would really drive that last arc of them overcoming the Rangers. And it really drove me kind of crazy with, again, with them just kind of putting these elements of hockey but not really unwinding them or bringing them anywhere. And I felt like it really did a disservice, like you said, with uh, the tall character tree, because he's, he does, he's a, he's a great lovable dude. And there's that one scene where they're all watching, they're watching that Ty Domi fight where he's beating up the dude and then he covers the baby's eyes. And they say, can we fast forward to the hockey part? It's a funny line. I really actually like that line. He's like, we just fast forward, but it's, it's what the movie does. It fast forward past all the grit and like, what really made these other movies a little more iconic. And it goes into like, oh, we're just giving you an underdog story, but it's not giving, us that underdog story because the team doesn't get beaten down enough unfortunately for you to really care about them I mean this like in their lives I mean this on the ice there's not a lot of there's not enough negative action on our protagonists in this film to make you care about them because all our negative actions coming from like as you pointed out just very much like television, like drama of, you know, whose relationship is connected to who they used to be with, who's fucking who and why, and then how are they going to forgive them for fucking who. That's all that happens in these stories. You lose a lot of the elements of the good romantic storyline, completely gets lost in this. And then, as we we're discussing here with the violence, but the more visceral aspect that you kind of want from a sports movie. I just didn't get that with this, which is unfortunate. We've, we've gone through three decades of sports movies, of hockey movies, and we've really traced, you know, the but there's a great trajectory of the improvements in cinematography to really capture these things. And this one, we just kind of see them using all of those things. And hockey looks good, but it's not taken to the next level. I think that's one thing that holds this one back from being a memorable sports classic.
1: I, I think what we're both getting at is that it's trying to cover too much territory and it's trying to just be everything it isn't. It just feels very superficial, it feels very written. It feels like it was a byproduct of a focus group, right? It feels workshop. That was the word I was, uh, that was eluding me, right? Like, like a, it's a screenwriter's workshop in which they're going to take all of these different reuse things that work independently in films that are really about something specific like Slapshot, right? Flapshot <laughs> is so authentically steeped in the city of Johnstown, Pennsylvania, that it just Mm -hmm. oozes genuineness. You're just like, wow, I'm just teleported like 30, 40 plus years back in time. And even if it has its kind of cartoonish moments that are fictionalized, you you feel like there's a realness to them, right? And, And that's not gonna happen with this movie. And one of the things that I really enjoyed and like laughed at and jeered at and sneered at, which kind of encapsulates this movie is all the courtroom scenes and how I already mentioned ridiculous they are, I think that in in uh, many ways, it shows that it just wanted to hit all the most popular cinematic beats, especially of the 90s. Courtroom dramas were everything in the 90s. There were so many great ones, but this one tried to put three in there, right? I think there's the one where the, the player shoots the foot of the guy that's, I forget the name of his company. It's like Walmart, but it's- Price World, I think. Price World, yes. And then the guy just goes on a like Tourette's rant of cuss words which is definitely what got this it's rated r to all those critics out there who wrote 20 years ago why'd this get a rated r because it feels so inoffensive it's clear why it did you know there's like Mm -hmm. premature ejaculation some guy yelling like bum fuck cut fuck like he's just screaming profanity i'm like yeah that's gonna get you rated r which is shocking not because of what he's saying but shocking that a big studio would let such an inconsequential character feature be what gets really gets it's rated r and not cut that that's what i was odd at i was just really curious mm-hmm. about like the money and economics behind these decisions too and i think they were making a bet that people would really resonate with how risque and edgy and provocative this was and what you get though is people saying no this is the opposite of that this is like the safest most provincial thing ever you mm-hmm. know it feels very staid and harmless
0: like yeah sorry just catch you off, especially when we were talking about American beauties in theaters at the same time everyone's talking about the creepy dude who's hitting on his daughter's friend his neighbor all all these like we just said these intricate plots that really have lots of weight to them and are driving people to the theaters to see it right and this movie unfortunately maybe um, by unluckiness by sheer unlucky or timing is out when this other competing movie gets all this hype it's also rated our movie completely different genre Yeah, it's it's kind of this weird timing, but also with this unfortunate product that it resulted in.
1: Totally, that too is just it's got a a true provocative narrative going on Mm -hmm. that's really pushing buttons and really is transgressive. Whereas this is just safe reaffirmation, right? You you get all those. Uh, romantic tiffs between husbands and wives and as bad as some of them are right there's like trysts, you know and cheating you know that they're going to reconcile and they get their like brief moment which they say things i wrote a few of them down like i think russell crowe's wife says it's not an easy place for a woman Mm -hmm. and like i wanted to bring that up because she spells out i'm a character too which is a nice thing but it's so on the nose Mm -hmm. that it doesn't really hit you whereas like like, (laughs) yeah Whereas they're ticking a the box for a slap shot. Like they don't do that explicitly, but then by the end, those are very strong-willed autonomous women in Slapshot. Yeah. As, as much hate as that gets, right? And no, here. you're right.
0: Because at the end of Slapshot, you're you're like we discussed, you feel kind of desolate at the end because one of the lives they live, the one like the women point out in Slapshot, and they don't just say it, like they live it, like they view it, like from the way she drives the van to the way she her, her character changes, like, you know, it's, it's embodied to a degree where it, it resonates with you at the end of that of that movie, where, like we said, you question the ending of Slapshot because of the, particularly because of how strategically well-placed the women are in that movie, just to make you question Paul Newman's genuine, like, childlike lust for the game, which none of these people actually have, I will say. A quintessential part of all these hockey things these boys want to just keep being boys and play hockey their whole lives. I don't buy that from Russell Crowe's character. I don't buy it from any of the guys in this locker room, uh, which is unfortunate. But like you said, the the women, unfortunately, they get these lines that feel like they're going to be profound. They feel like they might have some sort of substance to take you somewhere, but they don't. They Unfortunately, they wouldn't pass the Bechdel test because they all get tied back to hockey, to what the guys are playing. Like we've mentioned with our adultery story, it's resolved by the adulterer game, beamed in the puck, beamed in the balls of the puck. And then the husband, I guess, feels vicariously through that redeemed. And therefore they're 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 hashed out. They even win the game, but they, they're, they're hugging, they're good. But then he's rewarded in the end when he ends up hooking up with the reporter, right? You have to have that corn dog thing in there, but it doesn't bring you to the next level like you say it's it's too much of a we need to put this in here it's there we'll leave it
1: yeah there were a few things though like like you said so much stuff's on the nose and doesn't work i was thinking like i'm going to be a little generous for a second there's a few parts i like there was one scene in which when russell crowe is forced to be the coach. He's kind of kicked off the Saturday squad. I like the tradition of the Saturday game too. That's kind of a cool tradition. I love the fact that his wife tells him everyone who was once a player and is now a coach says they prefer coaching. (laughs) And he's like, that's because they're coaching. I I love that line. And I think like, I've never heard that before. And I think that's a really cool exploration. I think that could be its own movie and would be a much superior film. Just a film about the sort of torn, tortured soul of a coach who was once a player and loves coaching, but still feels a bittersweetness no matter what, because they're not playing. I I think there's that archetype a little bit in different films always, but I I thought the line really hit a, hit a nerve there. I thought that was really great. I also liked when finally uh, Hank Azario's character, the like literary urbanite defends himself when he's like finally drunk and silly moment right where russell crowe goes and has has a real quick heart to heart with him also because he feels threatened right that's the guy who's like Mm -hmm. the romantic ex of his wife and he feels threatened by him so there's that undertone going on as well but i I do like when he he gives his big spiel about really you guys rejected me you know i just wanted to fuck you with the pulitzer prize (laughs) i don't know I, i bought that because it felt like the most Natural thing for these screenwriters who don't know anything about Mystery Alaska, probably. They're both like Hollywood guys, you know what I mean? Who are like more interested in Pulitzer Prizes than any hockey movies and underdog movies and sports movies are making a bargain in the nineties. Let's try one out. Right. So I don't know, something about that felt like it actually resonated with the screenwriters, which I thought was funny. So those two moments, I kind of liked, I'll pass along if you have anything to say going on here, or is there anything that you uh, did like?
0: Because I, I do like to put that out in here. So I, I will say uh, I was, I'm an LA Kings fan. So jim fox is in this and jim fox is swollen and ripped back then he, we forget jim fox he's the fucking have a neck on him but he, there's a proof right there i did like mike myers kind cam, of cameo that was, that was a well-placed one i like seeing that jay roach directed this i think jay roach directed like austin powers remember right yeah so I, I i did like that that element of him kind of parodying the sports announcer
1: i love yeah. the uh the entrance of uh, austin powers the one yeah. and only because you know he loves entrances hockey.
0: actually i did like the team's entrance that's one of the cool things. I like the way they have the ice flying. I like the intro to this movie. I think that's one of the things. I thought the intro had a lot of potential because I felt like we were going on that. like We discussed a similar journey of small town, Rustic. This one has cool ice, like a river of ice. He's kind of skating everywhere. I kind of wanted to see that more threaded in the background. We really didn't. There's like one scene where they mentioned that people skate everywhere, but that didn't pop out more. Other than that, there's not a whole lot of like stand up stuff that I would actually really like draw attention to. I would call attention just because you know, we are a sports podcast. We have that quintessential locker room speech happens in here. For me, it relied, it relied a little too much on, as you point out, that Maximus kind of gravitas from a gladiator kind of, he kind of just jumps into it for a second, which kind of threw me off. I will say Burt Reynolds was probably the best part about this movie in terms of his character, his sternness. I feel like he really brings a a, just legitimacy to this movie that kind of lacked despite all the big hitters in it.
1: Yeah, I mean, he was great, but he also like with Russell Crowe seemed like they were so serious, whereas there was so much goofiness. It was hard to oscillate back and forth, but he definitely (laughs) grounded it. And so did Russell Crowe. I feel like those two grounded it. We have two powerhouse actors (laughs) really anchoring this film in good dramatic potentiality. And then it's, just not up to task so yeah it, it was just a weird mixture of incongruous tones but uh for sure i love the entrance when there's ice skating down that kind of sinuous snake-like route onto the ice super fun when the rangers come and the whole crowd puts up the newspaper it's pretty silly but when then they come through like the blocks and break it down i thought it was fun. Uh, i did
0: like little richard the little richard freeze out was a funny idea that, that, that did have me laughing
1: that did too and that's when it kind of like really went for the goofy his full throttle. And I think also with Mike Myers, I think that when it truly went there, is when I was on board. I, I thought Mike Myers was hilarious and you could tell that he loves hockey and just his funny, funny verbiage. He says like, he's got big knuckles, dinky dude, not fan, tippy tap. He's just like saying crazy shit. And he's talking about hockey though. It makes sense. I was like listening to it. And yes, I'm, I found like just gibberish, but he's literally doing hockey talk with this kind of comedic, uh, alliterative language. That's really funny. And like one in line, he says, I want to adopt them all as my own right after the second. <laughs> Cause he kind of like keeps that Vaseline, right? He, he oh. thinks they don't have a chance and he loves them. And then he's, you know, he's just kind of over the place emotionally. But I loved it. I, I thought Mike Myers was a great cameo. Obviously, just kind of doing a friendly gesture to Jay Roach, in my opinion, to show yeah. up in this. I don't get how they got Little Richard, but it was funny <laughs> that he tried to ice them out with his long rendition of the Star Spangled Banner. I thought that was great. <laughs> and then getting the Canadian song too. Pretty funny. Those moments I liked when it tried to be tender and real, like when. Russell Crowe starts reading words he crossed out from the newspaper Mm -hmm. to his wife, like radiant, tender, maximum. Like, I was just like, uh, uh, just like too lacrimose and weepy. And maybe it was trying to win the like female demographic, but I don't even think they would buy into that crap. So all over the place, it was fun. Kind of crap too. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, I think that a few People who I like read on Letterbox were talking about like how it like has this 90s corniness that really like filled their like hearts and totally, totally. I could easily get on board. I didn't, I didn't have like a real animosity towards this movie. It just wasn't going to like preach its qualities to people, especially after the last two we've done. So yeah, run in the mill. What do you think about the hockey in the final game? I thought that that was at least decent. I mean, nowhere up to you know yeah. what we've been
0: doing. So, like, I like the way the hockey shot in this. The one thing I think is God's going for it compared to like the last two, the actors and at least their stunt levels or whatever's filling in for them on skates look good and the shots match up nicely. Transitions were cool. Like we said, it seems like a good culmination of just really bringing all those fundamentals we discussed from these last ones, you know, using the different cart shots, whatever they've been using, really like honing it and getting it down. But the the momentum of the game was not like intriguing for me, and again, it speaks to the to the story of that it didn't build up the Rangers as an adversary to be feared. Like the Ducks do such a good job of like we talked about with with the Hawks, with Team Iceland, of really making them such a scary adversary from the coach to their star players, where like Gunnar Nelson, you know, we said he's a name that can be recalled if you played hockey in the 90s. And unfortunately, there's nothing like that on the opposition, even in terms of like the NHL wasn't willing to give them like one player who it's a big name to kind of focus it around. Like, we need to watch out for this guy. It's kind of a big missed opportunity, I think. Even if the story was switched around to like highlighting that this would be like the Rangers B squad probably going to play a game like this, right? You're not going to send your stars to it. And just highlight there's a goon on that line. You got to watch out for because he will fucking kill you. right? Something like that. Just that it was absent. Like we just didn't get with, with Slapshot and with young blood where you have that rival that you're going to you're going to you're going to beat them at the end or you are gonna have your moment of glory but you got to earn it and this one just didn't do it with the opposition which i was really you feel it in the last game you're kind of like when's the finals score going to happen i'll leave up to you do you think they're going to win or lose
1: yeah i did think that they were going to pull off the comeback so i was surprised that they didn't i do think that having them get on the lead was unique and then I, I totally knew that they were going to get clobbered in the second period. But then have them come back and not quite make it, I thought was quite kind of unique too. I, I get that it was unique in the way that like, we're being unique. We're not just having the winners, right? Yeah. But it did keep me on my toes. I did not actually predict it to happen like that. I did it. So I, I'll give them credit for that. I like the one scene where they're watching footage of the, of the New York Rangers playing and They're in a fight on TV and they're freaked out. I thought that was good, but that's as far as they go. Otherwise you're on point. They don't villainize the Rangers enough. You don't get to know any players enough. There's like one kind of blondish guy that I kept seeing on the Rangers that kind of had a personality, but not enough. We really got to know our enemy a little more. You brought up uh, Mighty Ducks, but like Big Green, Big Green too. Great enemies. Even like make the coach a good enemy. That's all you need. But no, it wasn't enough. It was just pretty much a symbol for like big town, Big Apple, prideful, super silly as cocky city people. It was kind of folk, rural, versus the hubristic city folk um so that was the duality they're going with but it wasn't enough i did read though that they weren't able to get the rangers to come into the movie and they tried it's kind of fitting it's kind of apropos for a movie that's all about are we going to get the rangers to come to this town <laughs> the real team wouldn't join in the movie so that kind of hampered them a bit the other thing that we did skip and we have to give a shout out to is we brought up jim fox but not barry melrose right that's oh yeah a, that's our guy hey. right there My bad. It's all right. But uh,
0: they have him in such a good move where he's complaining about something too, which I I appreciate whenever you have him on something, he's always complaining and like really hating on it. So I I did, I did appreciate that.
1: Yeah. You have Barry, not only complaining, but he's like, has a savvy take, right? He's bringing up like they're, they're sending the Rangers during their break to play this like Bush (laughs) league team. Like who's going to want to do that? It's a very modern day sports TV take of this ultra pragmatism that has no romantic love for the story. So I love that. I had two questions for you real quick. First one, Dead Bailey, Dead Hans, which one do you think is the better inspiration?
0: It's got to be Hans, man. Hans, even they even bring his death into the courtroom, right? They they, they go back to the courtroom with his ghost to remind you we're going to win. We're going to win a court battle for Hans and we're going to win the game for Hans. Shit, Just thinking about it makes me want to pick up my stick and play, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I'm on
1: board. And the other question if for someone who's even smarter about like the hockey dynamics, do you really think that the open ice versus the boards would make that much of a difference? Because I think they overplayed that. I get that they... Needed that as a device, but I think they overplayed that. What is your take on someone who's really? I gotta got
0: agree with you. I think they overplayed that. When you look at the Olympics and how good, like, why every country wants an NHLer on their team, right? And, and across the globe, regardless of how much bigger that ice is, that skill and speed deficit, and just the knowledge of the game, yeah, that's that's part of the problem with kind of. I have the opposite reaction. You know, like the NHL is never gonna let the Rangers lose this game because I mean, one, it's a horrible look, but like, it just it's almost it's a little too illogical when you're looking at it just these are beer leaguers. Like that's the other thing. Kind of the movie doesn't do a good of a job of like highlighting these are beer leaguers. That's kind of another problem because like I'm like these are still beer leaguers. Again, it's Mystery Alaska and there there's a council that picks your favorite beer leaguers to play, but they're still beer leaguers. So I think again that could have been a little punctuated a little more. but
1: No, I agree. I think I'm pretty much wrapped up. I was going to talk about the mashed potatoes on Burt Reynolds' plate, but <laughs> that's <laughs> totally frivolous and stupid. He just had a mound of mashed potatoes and they held the scene on his wife like looking at it. I thought that was quite funny. It was one of the funniest. Uh-huh. don't know what that said, but it kind of said more than a lot in this movie of just like this angry kind of patriarch who just takes too many Yeah,
0: Actually, I will call there was one other line I liked when his daughter is talking, Burt Reynolds' uh, daughter's talking to his wife about having sex with her boyfriend. And Burt Reynolds comes into Maine to know what's happening. She says, if you leave right now, I promise I won't tell you. he leaves. I love the implications and the subversiveness of the father. And again, the idea that he doesn't want to know what's happening with his innocent daughter. And okay, you got, you got the reins on this one. That was a good example of the unspoken that really needed more of.
1: No, that was very clever. I did a double take and rewound that. It was a super clever line because yeah. it was like this code of like, you know what we're talking about now. You don't even want to be it. And he, I love that he was just like acquiesced. It was like, yeah, I don't, don't want to go there. Like this, I'm stepping out of the rink right now. Oh. It was great. That was like a totally worth like a half star alone, that line. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it was just preposterous though that the way the daughter brought it up to the... The mother, though, I didn't buy that at all. I also love, though, just take it back because you brought up the daughter. When she is trying to hook up with her boyfriend, he's a new newbie on the team, right? She's, like, really jealous of the fact that he's going to be a star, and she's really scared that he's going to have all this attention, but they live in mystery, Alaska. I kept saying to myself that was really funny. Like, who are you jealous of? The other, like, two girls in town? Like, you can't handle?
0: (laughs) Who you don't see in the movie, by the way? (laughs) Like,
1: Yeah, sorry, but I, I was, like, what competition would she ever have? Like, she would never manage in Seattle. She'd have no chance. I feel <laughs> terrible for, for her. Anyways, I'm ready to move to the reviews if you are. Actually, wait,
0: before we get to the yeah. reviews, uh, do you want to go over, like, the, the story that this was actually based off of? Or not really based off, but kind of inspired it?
1: Absolutely. So let's move into trivia first, right? The the yeah. story that this is inspired by is really fascinating. So I'll let you kind of lead us into that.
0: Yeah, we'll kind of just give a brief summary. So the story, this story takes place in 1905 in a town called Dawson City up in the Klondike mining region of the Yukon Territory of Canada. All right, just give a little context up there. So this uh, team called the Dawson City Nuggets in 1905 issued a challenge to the defending Ottawa Silver Screen. Silver 7, excuse me. The Ottawa Silver 7 is the name of the team. All right, so they issued a challenge to them basically saying we can beat you in the Stanley Cup match. However, they had to travel 4,000 miles from Dawson to Alaska. Now that like today doesn't sound like much, but like, let's just to get there at this time in 1905, the fucking hockey team had to go there on bicycle dog sled, a dinghy railroad coach boat, and finally, a transcontinental train. Now imagine that road trip. That is just like, that's not a road trip. It's fucking, that's fucking Lewis and Clark track right there, right? You're trekking to the Yukon to go play hockey. You're riding your bicycle, and your skates to go play the Ottawa 7. Like that is fucking not, that is not, that is a movie. Like I, when I read that first line, I was like, that's a movie. I want to watch that. I want to know about that road trip and all the stories that hockey team had. So we'll give like a some slight context. Basically like these fools and this is in the middle of the gold rush are traveling on, like I said, all these dingy things down there to go play this you know, local team. They're financed by this local entrepreneur who's made rich off the gold rush. He's financing them to get down there. Again, they're going there, like their dream is, you know, they're they're from a town that's kind of like the, you know, not the American dream, but you know, the financial dream. They, they've struck gold and now they're going to turn that fortune into glory by beating an NHL team. Like they really believe they can do this. So again, they travel down there. There's a point there where they get like stuck somewhere for like four days, right? Before they can get like, a. I think it's a boat can come and get them. So these dudes are stuck in Canada for four days. waiting there's all sorts of just like horrible mishaps that would like basically delays that would delay us for like you know the next gas station over today. These guys are stuck for like days in the Yukon, and they play in hockey in between, which I find funny too. They find days to practice. So, anyways, they do make a trip all the way out to Ottawa. They play them. Um, they play two games, and they end up losing the first one nine to two. And they still say that they could beat them. They say basically like, and they have a battle I just described. These motherfuckers just traveled the Yukon on a bicycle, which I didn't know you could do. And they showed up to play hockey and they lost, right? They're tired. Uh, the Rangers actually wouldn't give them a day of rest, it says, which is kind of, or I said the, the Ottawa 7 wouldn't give them a day of rest. I meant the Rangers because it like, sounds like the Rangers probably wouldn't do that based on what we saw from this movie too. So anyways, Ottawa's like, yeah, you guys traveled down here on your bicycles, but you got to play us basically tomorrow. So they're like, no, no, you have an unfair advantage. We could beat you. So they play another game And these dudes get killed 23 to two in the second game, right? And so, like, again, it's just just this crazy story of, like, just grandeur ideas of, you know, greatness, you know, really trying to come out there and compete and, you know, encountering a wall, which is what, you know, Mystery Alaska, the actual movie, is afraid of. It references it, but... Had they referenced this defeat, had that movie referenced this story, had, had that movie had an Inuit guy who used to play hockey tell the story of 1905 when they went and tried this and they failed, that would have just upped the stakes of the actual mystery Alaska story. So just to give a little context for our listeners of what this was based off of, pretty wild ass tale of hockey, if I could say so myself.
1: Amazing. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. That's such a good tale. Right. On bicycle, <laughs> across the Yukon, just unreal, right? Exponentially more... Interesting movie, man. We gotta write that screenplay. We gotta. We're calling. So. We're calling dibs right now on the podcast. If anyone's listening and your ears are peaked it's ours. All right, <laughs> I'm. I'm calling dibs. Uh, it's. It's copywritten by by uh, tomorrow morning. That's. A, <laughs> that's a winner right there. <laughs> it's so good, man. It. It doesn't even. It's not even the same ballpark. Right? Wrong sport
0: for my metaphor, but it's a fucking road trip. <laughs> like, I mean, like.
1: That is Cast such Tom a Green
0: good... in that. You got yourself a movie.
1: <laughs> yeah, that is such a good movie. Oh my gosh. I, I could just even think of casting it right now. It'd be fun. Some fun trivia questions. I'm going to give you a really softball ones. Hopefully you'll get them. No, i sure. This film was originally titled something that came out a few years before. It has hockey connotations in its name. And it's a movie starring two big actors. Nicolas Cage is one and John Travolta is the other. What oh, was the original name for this movie? Face Off cool
0: okay the one and only
1: <laughs> yes also second trivia i'm trying to softball because it's no fun when there's two of us and no one gets the answer so russell crowe and two co-stars from this film kevin durand and scott grimes go on to a team in the 2010 hit movie about a character who steals from the rich and gives to the poor what movie is that Stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. Robin Hood? Yeah. yeah. So definitely not the Kevin Costner Robin Hood. So that's where I guess we're also seeing too. Is that Russell Crowe can really, really own a movie. Gladiator is amazing. But mm-hmm. whenever he tries to walk in Costner's footsteps.
0: That's where he gets uh, into trouble.
1: He gets into trouble, right? Not, not his territory. So... Just in case you note
0: to Russell Crowe's agent, because I know he's listening to this podcast. You got to stop following Kevin Costner, dog.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well said, Jordan. Well said that agent. Yeah, it's definitely going to take heed to our advice. I'm sure (laughs) the last trivia I'm just going to bring up. uh, The movie was filmed actually in Alberta, Canada, not Alaska, because it was cheaper, which is pretty much always. And I'm not a big hockey commentator guru, if it's not Jim Fox, but I guess there's a Canadian commentator named Don Cherry. I don't know if you're familiar, but Mike Myers inspired, influenced his take in this movie.
0: Don Don Cherry recently actually got fired in the me too movement for for his hot takes, but yeah, Don Cherry was used to have the hockey videos, the hockey fights. I forgot the actual title of them, but they're like the VHS tables. I actually used to have a couple at my house where they'd have just the compilations of hockey fights. You know, you watch the video, he kind of like announce them and stuff, and yeah, he's the big, he's big in Canada.
1: Very cool. I might know him if I saw him, but it's on the top of my head. So now to the reviews. Rotten Tomato, that's got thirty seven percent critics, 66% audience, a pretty much a fair, predictable distribution, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. Pretty rotten on the critic side, barely rotten on the audience side. There was a few Semi-interesting takes by critics. Not as interesting, I think, as some of the uh, letterbox takes we have, but I'm going to start off with one that I found by Destin Thompson. He's writing for the Washington Post. He said, it's sort of the adult mighty ducks that stretches and strains in the direction of the last picture So but falls flat on the eyes. I I like that analysis. It's actually pretty spot on. So for those who are more sports movie fans, The Last Picture Show is a really amazing kind of coming of age, small town story. It's a AFI top 100 movie. So it's really a classic. And I totally recommend anyone to go check that out if you've never seen it. It very much is more of the ambiance and ethos of this movie so he's saying it's more about these small town young men who are just kind of dealing with life so uh, really cool comparisons i think it does really paint the the film well in those two connections so what did you find in terms of the reviews on your end
0: um this one's from philip martin who's certified it fresh says completely inoffensive if you don't mind old ladies and little children saying shockingly rude things but it's no slap shot if that's what you want to know. I actually thinks that that's a pretty good fair analysis without going into too much plot detail or anything like that of what this movie really is. It isn't very offensive um, when you look at it today. He calls out the, best, the funniest part is probably the old lady with the old lady chirps. They aren't iconic in any way. But if you're looking for something like a slap shot, you're just not going to find it with this. And I, I, I concur with him. He still gave a B minus. So I gave it a higher rating than I would give it.
1: Yeah, totally. And I love that he's cross comparing between movies We're also cross comparing actively
0: yeah. so... Um, the one that
1: I found as well kind of reiterates what I've said a few times. And it's by Michael Dequina from themoviereport.com. He said, with so many characters and plot lines, it seems that TV King Kelly mistook this big screen assignment for another network pilot. I love that he calls it a pilot too, because it really feels like a pilot episode, right? Because pilot episodes are often longer and you really can see that this would be a, probably a pretty decent, TV show, and that's going to take me to the end of Roger Ebert's review, in which he also calls it out for being probably better on TV. And he says, "I think this cast in the same town could metamorph into an entertaining sitcom." It almost feels like they metamorphed out of one. (laughs) Uh, Really well said. Uh, Yeah, definitely a lot of people seeing the connections between sitcom world and this. I think another person likened it to Northern Exposure. The list can go on and on, but there's just tons of TV dramas that it feels like it evokes the same sensibilities as. So what else did
0: you find? This one comes from John Hartle of the Seattle Times. He writes Crow gives a kind of thoughtful performance that suggests what Mystery Alaska could have been if it had stayed in focus. Uh, again, fair we've already talked about how, how good Russell Crowe is in this. I agree. Like we said, if it was a little tighter screenplay or a little tighter focus what we wanted to be it could have had a solid film.
1: I think that um it could have gone either way. It could have been really goofy or really serious, kind of did both it's an everyman's film so let's move on now to Letterboxd. and i'll let you go again i'll let you start with the Letterboxd review um there's all over the board on letterbox some really hot take some people who love this and some people who just cannot stand it so
0: i'll let you start off take this one from jordan beaumont anderson He gave it two and a half stars jordan writes Do you ever wonder if the dominance of Zamboni in the ice resurfacing vehicles market has nothing to do with the superior technology or smart branding, but rather the result of numerous Zamboni hit squads deployed from strategic Zamboni sites across the globe, finding, interrogating, and terminating any individual who might jeopardize Zamboni's iron grip? That is one hell of a conspiracy theory for Zambonis. We didn't talk about Zambonis a whole lot in this, but that is... One of the funnier scenes was the DUI Zamboni scene with Hank Azaria kind of getting pulled over. And like you mentioned, I guess you did mention it was like a little heart-to-heart thing. But I did like, we got the classic uh, Zamboni song that plays uh, all, all the hockey games. I want to ride the Zamboni. So that was a little, nice little nod to the to the source material, I guess.
1: Absolutely. I think that that is my review of the year. I think we could dedicate a whole episode to this review. <laughs> Let's try to break this down really quick. Do you ever wonder if the dominance of Zamboni in ice resurfacing Vehicle market, right? So it's not only talking about Zambonis, but we're talking about their market. has nothing to do with superior technology or smart branding, but rather the result of numerous Zamboni hit squads. (laughs) Okay, so Zamboni's market is based not on their effectiveness as a tool, but some sort of a shadowy hit squad group hiding behind the Zamboni culture. Deployed from strategic Zamboni sites across the globe, finding, interrogating, and terminating any individual who might jeopardize zamboni's iron grip i just repeated it but okay
0: i'm picturing like the x force like in like covert ops and shit just on zambonis though rolling out of like professor x's mansion in different locations just like fucking zamboning ice going all hard
1: yeah, I'm picturing Thomas Pynchon creating his next novel off this too. It feels very Pinchonian, right? It's just this hyper paranoid, absurd, absurd, hilarious statement. Jordan Beaumont, I know you're listening to this. Come on the episode. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna give you full airtime for this and create our own conspiracy theory network. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna blow up for this. we get you your
0: Zamboni Hit Squad movie. We'll get you that Zamboni Hit Squad movie.
1: Yeah, 4chan is nothing on this man. <laughs> he's just killing it. All right. I'll just do Ashley. She gave it a half star and said it lost me at quote, you skate like a homosexual end quote, which is kind of funny. No one really calls it out elsewhere, but, uh, it definitely has the same problems of the other nineties movies where it's definitely not PC friendly in all these ways. It's got a sort of undercurrent of, uh, I would say chauvinism throughout. So And I would normally defend it more, but in this movie, it's just kind of lame. I would say it's just kind of unfunny stuff. So I'm not going (laughs) to defend it at all. Just even out of free speech, it just kind of sucked. It wasn't funny. It was kind of mean. So Ashley, fair enough. (laughs) I'll give you
0: your shot. So this one's from... Please be my friend V. They give it one star. One star for the scenery because everything else about this movie sucked eggs. Watch Goon if you want a good hockey movie. I like that review. I haven't heard that phrase sucks eggs since probably kindergarten, but kudos to you to getting that into writing.
1: Are we going to watch Goon next? No, we're not going to Goon yet. We're going to... Oh, no, we're
0: going to go next.
1: So we got to discuss this. We were going to do Miracle, but then we weren't going to do Miracle. And then we we're going to do Miracle again. We keep switching and going back and forth. And Miracle is also a Olympic movie. So we were going to move a Miracle to Olympics. And what I'm going to say is that... Because we have the Summer Olympics and it doesn't quite fit, it's going to have to be our transition movie. So it's going to be our last hockey movie because it doesn't quite work with Olympics. It definitely works with hockey, but at least it's a perfect segue. So that's yeah. our last one, which leaves us either the, the Puck Hogs, which is going to be our kind of bonus hockey movie, or Goon. And I think that Goon is, is a good next one. I think that it's a good progression from this one. So we're doing Goon next, if you're down Are you down? Soon it is. Cool. So I also found a few more that was hard to decide between. Griffin talked about how the tone is of a class and kind that just doesn't happen anymore. And I'm not sure we even know how to make these types of movies anymore. I'm paraphrasing it, but I thought that was really interesting. I think we just don't even have this in us anymore. And so it's like watching almost an extraterrestrial film. It's truly like a time warp and head trip almost to watch a movie like this. We really bought into this, but like... We did, and it was our childhood. It's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. But the other one I want to bring up is really short. It's by Rick4589, and it just says, this was released just before the studios became obsessed with making everything PG-13. We briefly brought this up. It's quite interesting, right? This went for the R, it, like went for it, and it bombed. And it mm-hmm. perhaps has an interesting narrative to be construed by cinephiles that I, I don't know I don't know enough of the data out there but was this a film that ended like the rated R movement <laughs> was this like the big bomb I don't know but I'm just throwing that out there for another conspiracy theory but was Little Mystery Alaska the thing that changed
0: the studio's mindset of and was it to- the Zamboni hit squad that was behind it
1: <laughs> tune in next time to find more out so Anyways, that that takes us to about the end of our podcast. And another special thing about this podcast is it is May 25th. And one year ago today was our very first podcast. So congrats whoop. to us. Whoop, whoop. I think we deserved a cold one for that and a pat on the back and a million dollars. So for any listeners who want to Venmo us, just... Give us a DM on any of the platforms and send us that money because we deserve it. And it's also our 30th episode. So that's kind of exciting. Covered a lot. Done everything from NFL movies to behind the scenes movies to Disney kids movies. And now we're in the middle of hockey movies. I might be missing a few that we delved into like the Queen's Gambit and the Michael Jordan documentary that was epic and took up a few episodes of the last dance and we've had some awesome guests. What are some standout memories from the past year that you'd like to talk about? Some films that were surprises, some films that were busts. What's your take over the first year?
0: Oh, no, it's been a blast. Like I said, going Every couple of weeks here, looking at some good movies. Uh, I really enjoyed our last couple of episodes with our guests, uh, Don and Justin. That was a lot of fun. Just shooting the shit, talking hockey, drinking beer. That was a lot of fun. A lot of just surprises in terms of like going down memory lane and right, reviewing movies and kind of as we discuss on here, you know, reframing the way we look at them and whatnot. It's been a blast, man.
1: Yeah. Uh, sentiments echoed. I think that a lot of movies were fun to take deep dives on that i would never take a deep dive on right like if i did somehow manage to put on mystery alaska again which might have never happened i would never even given it this much time but there's something to be uh said for diving deep into like i don't know trifles i think that it's really fun mm. and exciting and the other thing with the guests we've had some fun guests that really brought life to the episode so thank you to all of them who've come on uh, jed justin you mentioned the other justin and of course don aaron Oh, and we can't forget JB Huffman or Michael Visi, right? There are two other great guests we had. We've had fun, fun, cool guests. So thank you all for coming on. And we look forward to having more episodes with, with friends on because it's just fun to switch the dynamic up. That's another thing I've been interested in. We're new at the podcast scene. And it's fun to like learn what works, what doesn't, and just maybe it's not about working or not. It's just what you can explore and uh, what perks and benefit, not benefits, but what rewards and I don't know what energy is created in different formats. And so mm-hmm. I, what I like now is it's fun to come back to just like me and you and kind of get a little headier and deeper, but then like next week have a guest and then another week maybe have hopefully like a director or an actor soon as we are reaching out more and more and branching out but it's just cool to switch up the dynamic and grow so yeah super fun awesome so leaving it on our ratings underdog or overrated we have to do it
0: Uh, i think this one's a pretty easy one i would say overrated this is one i don't see myself revisiting i would say if you're making a list of sports movies you can put this towards the back end if you Really want to, If you're making all those hockey movies, you just want to see hockey movies, you can leave this one towards the end of that list.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's uh, overrated. This one, unlike The Big Green, which was the other overrated ones I picked, which is also about a really small town, right? And kind of has a lot of parallels I was just thinking about. I would still see The Big Green in 10 years again, just because of certain reasons. Uh, mm-hmm. But this, I don't think I really would ever care to visit again. And it's not because it's awful. It just doesn't have anything that really
0: something pulling you to it in this, uh, even after you leave it. Right.
1: Yeah. It's just not entertaining enough. And it's not bad enough either. It's like, it's a weird diss, but if it was even worse, like terribly bad, then it would have a definite pull and an intrigue, but it's just so mediocre that, it's forgettable and I'm fine forgetting it Um, and I'm glad that we have this document and record to you know harken back to if uh, the conversation ever comes up about mystery Alaska and hopefully one pub trivia night we're going to win because I don't know we know that the Rangers refused to show up or that this was based on a 1905 Stanley Cup about a bunch of crazy gold rushers riding bikes to the Yukon so if there's anything that like it's the benefit it's that (laughs) and that's a real benefit in my book. So on that note, it, it might be a win, but it's a win just because it was fun to talk about. Still overrated. So it brings us to next week. We very sloppily debated it, but we're going to go with Goon. I am stoked for Goon. It's one I actually have seen recently. I'm not going to foreshadow any more than that, but I think it's kind of uh, exciting one to do a podcast on. What are you most anticipating when we tackle Goon?
0: Oh, man, I'm, I'm hoping to be joyous when I review it. It's been years since I've seen it. But the first time I watched Goon, I was a big fan of it. I liked it a lot the first time. Uh, I think I've only seen it like one, maybe twice in my life, though. It's, it's been a while since I've seen it. So I'm, I'm hoping it, it still holds up, to be honest. Um, I, I like Sean William Scott, too. I'm actually a Sean William Scott fan. He gets a lot of like, flack from our generation in terms of like where he fell in the in the totem pole of that of that era particularly after being similar and always trying to get away from that stigma but this is one of those roles where i think he really got to not just like flex his skills or anything like that but just embrace his physical presence which i thought was something that he i've always wanted to see more out of him uh in his roles i think that's this was a good one where he could be both funny and intimidating and like likable and Shy, as I recall, as I recall. So I'm hoping all that still stands is my, when I rewatch it. Perfect full
1: circle, right? We brought up American Pie a lot. We brought up Stifler already. We're going to come back to Stifler, but it's like a perfect role for Stifler in which he gets to color in some shades that he doesn't normally get mm-hmm. to color in. Yeah, that's really cool. It's going to be interesting to look at, you know, Sean William Scott. And I think his now signature role i think that goon is his yeah stifler is his most iconic role but the one role that he actually leads a film and gets to really actually succeed on multiple levels i would call it goon so yeah excited for that Um, until next time just send us likes love comments comment on our twitter whatever you think just you know give us a line and we look forward to talking again soon and having you listen in so thanks for listening have a good one